Over a holiday weekend in October 2003, 19-year-old college student Mark Fisher took his first trip to New York City unchaperoned. While there, he met up with a friend and went back to the home of John Juca. Shortly before sunrise the next morning, Mark was gunned down on a Brooklyn street he had never been to before. Two men were convicted of his murder, and one of them says he's innocent. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Hey there, welcome back to Crime Lines after my week off last week. It was a scheduled break that I usually use to catch up on behind-the-scenes stuff. But I actually was really, really sick last week. My voice may sound a little creaky still, so I apologize for any of that. So just thank goodness I didn't have to record last week because I wouldn't have been able to. I do want to say that I caught up on the website last week. And by me, I mean Lars from the Rusty Hinges podcast. He manages the website, which is basementfortproductions.com. There's a lot of talk right now. There are articles in New York Times, on BuzzFeed, Variety, about plagiarism in the podcast world. Specifically, true crime podcasts, though this is an issue across genres. All of the sources for Crime Lines episodes are up on my website. Some of my really long episodes have a lot of sources, and they all deserve to be credited, and I usually can't fit them all in the show notes. I'm working on a way to either link it out or truncate them or do something, but I'm not entirely sure what that's going to look like. But again, Basement Fort Productions has all of my sources. This is an issue I take very seriously, so I did want to address that as a researcher, a writer, a podcaster who depends on other people's work to make my episodes. I really believe people deserve to be credited and they deserve to have their original work remain theirs. And I pull the facts and rewrite an entirely new script. So both rewriting scripts and not taking their original work and also making sure I'm citing their work are both very important to me to show respect for the people doing this work. So with that out of the way, let's jump into today's case. This is a case that I covered way back in the beginning of Insight. It is the possible wrongful conviction of John Juca. A lot has happened in this case over the last couple of years, and someone reached out to me and asked me if I would do an update episode. And I considered just doing one episode that just starts where this original one left off and bring everybody up to date. But then I decided it would make more sense to redo the episode entirely. Those who have been listening since the beginning, they heard this episode three years ago. It would take so long to recap everything that I'd end up redoing it anyway. So let's start at the beginning. At the time of his murder, Mark Fisher was a 19-year-old sophomore at Fairfield University, which is in Fairfield, Connecticut. Those who are not familiar with our U.S. school levels, sophomore is your second year in school. He grew up in Byram Township, New Jersey, which is two or three hours away from Fairfield. He played football, 
just it was a passion of his. He played it through high school. He played it in college. He did this even with obstacles. He had asthma. In his senior year, he fractured his ankle during a game. Still played that season. At Fairfield University, he was majoring in accounting. He was doing great. All in all, he was living up to his potential. On Columbus Day weekend, 2003, so that is early to mid-October, Mark went back to visit home, back to New Jersey, for the long weekend. Some of his friends wanted to meet up in Manhattan to drink and party a bit on October 11th. So to give you a lay of the land, Manhattan is pretty much smack between Mark's home in New Jersey and the university. But even so, he had never been to New York City without an adult chaperone before. I mean, he was just 19. He arrived in Manhattan and was at a bar on the Upper East Side when he bumped into someone he knew from the university, Angel DiPietro. Angel was with two other friends of hers, Meredith Denahan and Albert Cleary. Angel and Meredith had plans to take the train home, but they missed the last train. So Albert invited the pair to instead just spend the night at his house in Brooklyn and then take the train back the next day. Around the same time, Mark realized he was separated from the friends that he went there with, and he didn't have his cell phone in order to call them and find them. And he was also a bit intoxicated. I mean, obviously. Drinking is a pretty typical activity when you're going to a bar. So Angel and Meredith didn't want to just ditch Mark under these circumstances in the city. So now we have the four of them kind of sticking together, Albert, Angel, Meredith, and Mark. At some point, John Juca joined this group. And John was a 20-year-old student at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. This is the same school Dr. Henry Lee earned his undergraduate degree from. It's a respected school. It currently has a 33% acceptance rate, which is half the national average for four-year public universities. So John was also a young man living up to his potential, without a doubt. He had plans to become a police officer. When John joined this group of four, Albert was the only one he knew. They lived in the same Brooklyn neighborhood. I read somewhere that the group had tried to get into yet another bar, but because some of them were underage, possibly with fake IDs, they got spotted and kicked out. The drinking age in the U.S. is 21, and we're talking about 19, 20-year-olds. Eventually, they're all out on the sidewalk trying to decide what to do next. Mark didn't have enough money to get home from Manhattan. He did borrow a cell phone and tried to call one of his friends he had been with earlier, but the friend didn't pick up. So Mark left a message, and around 4 a.m., they all decided to go back to John Juca's house in Brooklyn for a bit of an impromptu party. In their minds, it made sense because John's mom and stepfather were out of town. The only other person home was his teenage brother. 
So they all took a cab to John's house, and then other people came over. It's not entirely clear who else came over. The only one of real note here is a young man named Antonio Russo. He was 17 years old. He had dropped out of high school. He was known for having drugs. He lived in the same neighborhood as John and Albert. While at John's house, the group went outside to drink and smoke pot. There's some conflicting statements on who all went outside, but that's not that important. Mark decided to go to the ATM to take out some money. He asked John for directions to get there. For whatever reason, John's directions weren't making sense to Mark. So he left with Antonio with the assumption Antonio was going to show him how to get to the ATM. And that's pretty much what happened. The ATM receipt said 4.23 a.m. And that's what gets reported quite a bit. But the ATM's internal clock was actually an hour off. So we're talking 5.23 a.m. And that makes more sense knowing they didn't leave Manhattan until 4. Mark withdrew $20 from the ATM. This money would not have been enough money to get a cab to go the 50-odd miles from Brooklyn to his house in New Jersey. So I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume the money was to kick in for the party. They were drinking more alcohol. There was weed at the party. Someone has to pay for it. So, I mean, that might just have been the need for the $20. Albert said he was at the house when Mark left for the ATM and when he returned. But shortly after that, Albert and Angel left. They walked over to Albert's house, which was three blocks away. And these are three residential blocks, so it was probably maybe a five-minute walk. From what I understand, at this point, this leaves in the Juca home, John, Antonio Russo, Meredith, Angel's friend, and Mark, as well as John's brother. At some point, Meredith fell asleep on John's couch. According to phone records, someone called Albert's house from John's house at 5.57 a.m., and this call lasted just over a minute. Albert later said he did not remember this call at all, but John said the call was from him. He was telling Albert that Mark had left his house and was heading over there, over to Albert's. And if you remember, the only person Mark knew there was Angel. She had gone to Albert's house, leaving Mark in a house of strangers, so it would make sense that Mark was heading over there. But we do have another contradiction, because Angel said this couldn't be true. She said that they actually didn't leave the house until later. So Albert said they left shortly after Mark got back from the ATM, but Angel puts it at more like 6.10 in the morning, 13 minutes after the phone call. But then why was John calling Albert's house if they were sitting in his house? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So you can kind of see why this case is complicated. The witnesses and suspects 
contradict each other on little details pretty constantly. And depending on which little detail you believe, you can make this case go down pretty much any path you want. This case can absolutely become one of confirmation bias, of tunnel vision. I mean, I hope as you're all listening right now, you're not getting married to any theory because you're just going to see things to support it because there are little things here and there that seem to support pretty much anything. According to John, Mark was sitting on the couch with a blanket over his shoulders. Meredith was asleep. Albert and Angel had left. Not quite sure where Antonio Russo is at this point. Mark decided to go over to Albert's house, and he asked if he could take the blanket with him because it was pretty chilly out. This is uh, October, super early morning in New York. So it was pretty chilly. John said, sure, take the blanket, and Mark left. According to John, this is the last he saw Mark because he then, with everyone gone, went to bed. A bit before 6.40 a.m., Hiroko and Michelle Swarnick, who lived directly across the street from Albert, woke up because their dog was barking. Both said they heard voices in their driveway, kind of towards the end of their driveway, and one of the voices they were sure was female. But from their bedroom window, the driveway was blocked by trees, so they couldn't see who was in their driveway, at the end of their driveway, in the road in front of their driveway. They couldn't see any of that. Then suddenly they heard gunshots, and they heard the sound of a van door sliding closed immediately afterward. Multiple neighbors also reported hearing vehicle noises right alongside these gunshots, like right after or during, just right with this. Although they were directly across the street, Albert, Angel, and Albert's family were not among the neighbors who claimed to have heard anything. Mark Fisher was found face down at the end of the Swarnick driveway. He had been shot five or six times. He still had the blanket from the Juca home with him. The blanket was found under him around his midsection to thigh area, and there were no bullet holes in the blanket. So he possibly dropped it prior to the shooting. The right side of his face was injured as though he had been hit by someone who was left-handed. His wallet was missing. It was later found in a sewer a few blocks away. There were only two bullet casings found at the scene, even though we know he was shot more than that. And we're going to circle around to this again later. Within hours of the shooting, Antonio Russo, John Juca's friend, shaved his long dreadlocks that he had been growing for a couple of years, and within a few days, he left New York. He went to California. So the investigation got started, and it was a bit of a slow start, very much to the frustration of Mark's family. Lawyers became involved pretty quickly with most of the witnesses at the party. Now, again, getting a lawyer is not necessarily suspicious. Any lawyer would tell you to get a lawyer. 
Angel DiPietro was one who had a lawyer, and some think it's because she was the female voice heard at the end of the Swarnick driveway right before the shooting. But something you need to know about Angel is her father was an attorney. I mean, like I said, attorneys tell you get an attorney. Her father may have made her get one when he heard that there was the murder of someone she knew, and it happened right across the street from where she was supposedly sleeping at the time. The one issue with these lawyers, though, is that it does slow down the questioning and the ability to question witnesses. And the Brooklyn DA's office started feeling some pressure here. Here is a promising young athlete from the suburbs. He was in Brooklyn and got shot down in the street. This became pretty high profile. The media started calling it the grid kid slaying, which is referring to Mark's football playing. And this is one of those things where I really just hate these names. They're calling him the grid kid. His name was Mark Fisher. His life ended in violence, in tragedy, and these rag sheets are taking his name away from him. His name was Mark Fisher, not the grid kid. Can't even stand this. I'm assuming his family didn't appreciate it either. So maybe we could also think about the families before we start naming victims the grid kid. Anyway, the DA at the time in Brooklyn was Charles Hines. He died in January 2019. And the Brooklyn Eagle called his legacy, quote, complex. And I think that's pretty fair. He aggressively prosecuted racially motivated crimes. He prosecuted corrupt judges. Those seem like such positive things to do. But this aggressive attitude may have also contributed to wrongful convictions. More than 20 cases prosecuted by his office were overturned when his successor started a review board to look at these questionable convictions. So the DA's office made their own conviction integrity unit, or whatever you want to call it, and found more than 20 cases of wrongful convictions. For the record, Hines did deny any intentional wrongdoing on the part of his office. But as of January 2015, Nearly $25 million in settlements had been paid out to exonerees. I was looking for an updated figure on that, which I couldn't find a really easy one to pull from, but we know it's got to be at least double that because since this statistic, two men were awarded $13 million each. So that doubles this number. The two main issues with most of these convictions have been coerced witnesses and Brady violations. Again, Brady violation being when the prosecution withholds evidence from the defense that would have helped the defense. Obviously, not every case that Charles Hines' office prosecuted is tainted, but we do need to keep this context in mind when we're talking about a Brooklyn investigation, a Brooklyn prosecution during this time period. 
In addition to the political pressure of this high-profile case, Hines was also getting pressure from Mark Fisher's family. They don't understand how the suspect pool was maybe five people and the DA wasn't getting anywhere. The police weren't getting anywhere. So Hines appointed a special task force for this case when it looked like the investigation was stalling out. Investigators went into this with multiple theories of the crime pretty much from the start, and an early one was based on the blanket and the missing shell casings. It was essentially that Mark was shot while he was in a vehicle, then wrapped in the blanket and dumped at the end of the driveway. It would explain the vehicle that was heard, but it doesn't explain the voices the Swarnicks heard at the end of their driveway. Another early theory was that Mark was walking to Albert's house when he was robbed. He was shot when he fought back, and the killer grabbed whatever shell casings he could in the hopes he got them all and it would make it harder to identify the murder weapon, but that in the end he missed two of them. From the news articles at the time that I've pulled, it sounds like there were basically four people of interest in that first year. The people at the party, John Juca, Antonio Russo, Albert Cleary, Angel DiPietro. Albert Cleary seemed to be in the lead for a while. He had another beating slash assault case he was dealing with. He was known for being a bit of a tough guy. And not to mention proximity. Mark was across the street from his house. Anyone who follows true crime, we've talked about it on this show, you'll hear about it on pretty much every other show. Witnesses change their stories here and there. Sometimes it's really just little details that don't mean a lot. They could just be memory lapses. Did this happen before or after something else? How much time elapsed? Those things, they don't mean a lot. And then sometimes the stories mold and change to fit with evidence that keeps being presented to the person. It doesn't necessarily make this person guilty. People do like to minimize suspicion on themselves, even if they didn't do it. But it is important, just for the sake of overall credibility, to look at who did and who did not change their story. John Juca's story was that he saw Mark with the blanket on his shoulders and he was heading to Albert's house. John called Albert's house to tell him that he was going over there. John then went to bed, end of story. That was his story in the beginning. That remains his story. Albert and Angel both changed their stories a few times as to what happened that night. The details aren't terribly important, but it was everything from where they were, when they left, when Mark left, who saw him last, what they did later that day, and on and on. So their stories weren't terribly consistent, and I think that is why police were zeroing in, particularly on Albert, fairly early on. But eventually the investigation pivoted greatly and focused on another suspect, Antonio Russo. Remember, he shaved his hair that was very recognizable just the day after he left the jurisdiction within a few days. He was a high school dropout known to sell drugs. 
he became the prime suspect. And on November 19, 2004, 13 months after the murder, he was arrested. A month later, on December 21st, John Juca was also arrested. And his arrest was based on incriminating statements that had been made against him. There was a narrative forming here that this was a gang situation. Antonio and John were allegedly part of a gang they called the Ghetto Mafia. So whatever they did, for whatever reason, they were in it together because they were in this gang together. So now the motives and the theory of the crime is shifting. One theory was that they wanted to take this Ghetto Mafia gang into the big time. So Mark was killed in some sort of flex on John and Antonio's part. And then another theory of the crime that goes back nearly to the beginning of this was that this was a robbery gone wrong. Mark's wallet was taken, but statements from people at the party gave more reasons. One was that there was jealousy. Mark was talking to a girl that John liked. Then there's this weird one that Mark sat on a coffee table or an end table at John's house rather than grabbing a chair. And apparently, 20-year-old college student John Juca cared very much about breaches in etiquette. And he decided to gun down someone he barely knew for sitting on a table. There's just the possibility that it was a combination of these things, that they decided to go after Mark because he was flirting with a girl, because he was sitting on the table, because they have this gang thing. Could have been a combination. Most of the theories put the gun in Antonio Russo's hand, but it was either John's gun or the murder was done on John's orders or both. And it has to be at least one of those things for John to be guilty of the murder. The trial started in the fall of 2005. The prosecutor on the case was Anna Siga Nicolasi, and she's going to factor pretty heavily into this. She boasts a zero loss record when it comes to trying homicides, and you might recognize her. She is the host of Investigation Discovery show True Conviction. Something interesting happened with these trials. John Juca and Antonio Russo were tried separately, but at the same time. If anyone has listened to the podcast Reply All's episode arc called On the Inside, you're already familiar with this. They had two juries for the two defendants, but only one trial happening at the same time. So if you don't know how this works, it's pretty uncommon. So I I didn't know how it worked until I did this. Instead of going to the time and expense of two entirely separate trials, particularly when most of the witnesses are testifying against both defendants, they seat two separate juries to listen to the evidence. Now, John had his own attorney and he had his own jury. Then Antonio had his own. When a witness was testifying to facts that applied to both cases, both juries were in the room. But then when there was a witness testifying maybe just to something about John, Antonio's jury left the room. They were not allowed to hear or consider that evidence. And then they'd swap. So the juries were kind of coming in and out of the room to some degree, not 
constantly, but enough that it's unusual. The case against John relied almost entirely on witnesses. Even though the state argued the murder weapon was John's gun, the gun was never found. So it was never definitively linked to anyone or anything. There was no forensic evidence putting John at the scene. He didn't bleed on anything. He didn't leave his fingerprints on anyone. And because this happened so close to his home, things like cell phone pings were fairly meaningless because, okay, they put him in his neighborhood. That's where he said he was. Phone records are going to come up in a minute, though. So let's walk through the four main witnesses against John Juca. And the first was Albert Cleary. The most damning thing Albert testified to was that John told him on the same day of the shooting later that day that he was angry with Mark for sitting on the table. He viewed this as disrespectful. Albert initially told police that someone else at the party told Mark to get off the table. But when he testified in court, he said it was John who told him to get off the table. So that's one of these inconsistencies that just crept in. According to Albert, John continued to confess, saying that he gave his gun to Antonio Russo, he sent him outside to wait for Mark, and then John sent Mark outside so Antonio could rob, shoot, attack, whatever, Mark. So basically, Albert's story is that John not only set the whole thing up, but he moved the people around like chess pieces for this murder to happen. And that would be pretty damning if true. My biggest issue with Albert's testimony, I mean, obviously first, is that it changed. He was interviewed multiple times, and he gave differing stories before implicating John, and he seemed to implicate John when it became clear he was the person of interest himself. And I can see this happening. This him or me instinct could have kicked in. Albert was trying to protect himself. I'm not saying I think Albert was trying to deflect blame because he killed somebody, but he may have wanted to avoid his own wrongful prosecution. He was young. Young people tend to be impulsive. He may not have thought about the big picture of what would happen if the cops believed him and John ended up on trial. Now, that's just my opinion because Albert stands by his testimony even today. Even though it changed, he stands by this testimony that John confessed to him. So here's another interesting thing about Albert Cleary. He took a private polygraph test. People will sometimes do these because if they pass, they'll submit it to the police and say, look, I passed a polygraph. But if they fail, they have no obligation to tell the police that they even took a polygraph test because it's a private arrangement. So there is absolutely nothing for someone to lose by doing this private test other than whatever it costs, the money you pay for the test. So Albert took this test and he passed and he gave those results to the police. However, by his own admission on the stand, he actually lied on his polygraph because two of the questions were, do you know who killed Mark Fisher? And do you have any information about Mark Fisher's murder that you are holding back from police? He answered no to both of these questions. 
But based on his trial testimony, the answer to both of these questions was yes. He knew Antonio Russo shot Mark, and he knew John set it up, and he was not telling the police that. So was the polygraph wrong? Were the results forged? Or was he telling the truth on the polygraph that he didn't know who killed Mark Fisher? And then when he got on the stand, he was lying to implicate John Juca. I think it's a toss-up. Polygraphs are often wrong. You know I don't put a lot of stock in them. It's just interesting that the same polygraph that Albert used to try to clear himself isn't being used to clear John Juca, even though, if it's true, if he was correct on it, then it proves his testimony was a lie. So it's just this double-edged sword. And like I said about confirmation bias, you either believe his polygraph or you don't. And if you believe his polygraph, then he didn't do it and he doesn't know who did. But if you don't believe his polygraph, maybe he did do it and maybe John did. You can pick and choose evidence in this case. And I'm afraid that's exactly what was happening here. Another thing Albert testified to was that Mark was attacked closer to John's house than his own, according to the confession. And this is going along with that theory that Mark was killed in a vehicle and then dumped near Albert's house. But the people who heard the shots were on Albert's side of the neighborhood. For some reason, they were not called to testify, but these ear witnesses said they heard shots and then a van door slide immediately afterwards. And before the shots, they heard arguing. None of this matches Albert's story that the shooting happened closer to John's house. Not to mention the only shell casings found were near the body. There's no evidence linking the shooting to anywhere other than the end of that driveway. So just in short, my problem with Albert's testimony is that it doesn't fit. So let's get to the next witness, because this is John's girlfriend at the time, Lauren Calciano, and she was not at the party. She was not a witness that night. She never met Mark. However, both she and Albert testified she was present for that conversation where John supposedly confessed to Albert. Her recollections, though, of that conversation are rather different than Albert's, just even fundamentals like when and where it took place. And that brings the memory into question, either her memory or Albert's. But the most persuasive thing of all that her testimony was bogus comes in 2014 when she filed an affidavit recanting her testimony. Her affidavit has some pretty shocking reasons why she claimed she lied on the stand. The one that hit me the hardest was that she said ADA Nicolazzi essentially threatened her family. Her father was incarcerated at the time, and Lauren was told that they would make life difficult for him if she did not cooperate. She also said she was threatened with charges of obstruction and perjury, as well as the release of potentially embarrassing photographs. So if this affidavit is to be believed, we have another scared young person making a decision to protect herself. This seems to be a theme here. 
She also said in her affidavit that John's lawyer never contacted her. She even knew him because he was her father's defense attorney at some point, but he never interviewed her before the trial, even though she was an incriminating witness. Had he talked to her at all or sent an investigator to her door, she might have thought twice about this choice she was making. Again, this is a choose-your-own-adventure. Do you believe her testimony at trial or do you believe her later affidavit? Because it changes what you think about this case and about John Juca's guilt. So let's go to our next witness. It was also someone who was not there that night, Anthony Beharry, and he was a friend from the neighborhood. He testified that John asked him for help in disposing of the gun used to kill Mark Fisher. He had a whole story about this. It wasn't just a vague accusation. He said John gave him the gun. He had to put it under a box for someone else to pick up. Then that person was supposed to get the gun and put money in its place. But Anthony never went to get the money because he got too scared of being involved anymore. He had already done too much. I don't know if it'll surprise you, but Anthony has also since recanted. He claims that the statements he made about getting rid of the gun or because ADA Nicolazzi threatened him with arrest and said that he would not see his daughter again. At the time, he was in a bitter custody battle with his daughter's mother, and an arrest would be a very serious issue in that custody case. He said that within days of making his statement, he told John's mom and attorney that he had lied. When he was subpoenaed to testify, he told the DA that he wasn't going to, but then he was threatened with being charged with getting rid of the gun and with perjury because of his previous statement. But if he testified, he would have immunity from those charges, so he testified. So we're on our third scared young person. So do you believe his recantation or do you believe his trial testimony? So our last witness against John Juca is the one whose recantation really brings to light some of the possible misconduct of the prosecution, and his name is John Avito. He played the role of jailhouse informant. Incentivized witnesses like this, not very reliable to start with. Since his name is also John, and we're talking about John Juca, I'm just going to call him Avito to avoid confusion. He was incarcerated with John in early 2005. He was another young man. He was battling drug addiction and had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. So, spoiler alert, Avito also recanted his testimony, but prior to this, there were already issues that made some people scratch their head about what he said. Avito claimed to have overheard a conversation that John had with his father, not his stepfather, his father, about the murder weapon. The conversation happened during visiting hours at the jail, and the way the visits in the jail happened was in a room where you could fairly easily overhear the conversation at the table next to you. The conversation Avito described would have actually been impossible. John's father had unfortunately been rendered largely nonverbal due to a series of strokes. 
he only spoke a few words at a time. So this conversation that Avito described included John's father speaking sentences, paragraphs at a time, not just a word here and there. So the whole thing started falling apart from the start, if you know that about John's father. So Avito also claimed that the murder happened at the ATM, with John pistol-whipping Mark and then someone else taking the gun from John and shooting Mark. There is absolutely no evidence of any ATM visits except for the one that occurred an hour and 15 minutes before the murder. Mark returned to John's house just fine after that, as witnessed by literally everyone who was there. So clearly it wasn't that ATM visit. So now we have another supposed ATM visit, but ATMs have cameras. If someone was shot in front of an ATM or near an ATM, something would have been seen. But what we have here are multiple scenarios being presented to the jury by the witnesses. Lauren was saying that John gave the gun to Antonio Russo and Russo robbed, shot, and killed Mark and then got the gun back to John. Albert Cleary gave two scenarios. First, it was that John ordered Mark to be shot because Mark sat on a table And then the other was that he was doing it for the gang street cred. And here, Albert does say Antonio returned the gun to John in both of his scenarios. Now we have Avito testifying that John, Mark, Antonio, and someone else, because he actually testified there was yet another person there, went to the ATM and Mark was pistol whipped, beaten, and then shot. So the jury was given this variety of theories of how this supposedly happened. And that's actually totally fine. The prosecution does not have to know exactly how a crime happened or why it happened. They just have to prove who did it. My question, though, is that if everyone had a different story of how this happened or what John confessed to, wouldn't that give you pause as a juror? I mean, I know I'm never going to be put on a criminal jury. They'd ask me my name and I'd be like, I've got a question about the Rodney Reed case and they'll send me home. But I can't help but think three people saying John Juca confessed to what he did, but then all three of those confessions being so different that I would pause and kind of ask myself, what does that mean about the credibility of the witnesses? Especially when the witnesses were the evidence. They're not testifying to back up forensic evidence or eyewitness testimony. They are the evidence. So let's talk about the one thing that was presented that in my mind seemed the most compelling that was not dependent on the witnesses. At about 6.42 a.m., two minutes after the shooting, John's brother, who was in the house that night, called John's cell phone, and this call lasted four seconds. The question the prosecution asked here was why would John's brother call him if John was at the house and asleep, like he said? Was John out of his house, possibly at the murder scene, 
and his brother was calling to wonder where he is. Perhaps he heard the gunshots, or he heard a fight, and he was calling John to see what was going on. This phone call did only last four or five seconds. So did John hang up really quick, or, I don't know, was this just one of those times you call your phone because you can't find it? I mean, I call my phone fairly regularly for calls that only last four or five seconds because I'm trying to find my phone and I'm hoping the ringing will help. A call from one phone in the house to a cell phone doesn't necessarily mean the other person wasn't there, but this piece of evidence does give me pause and I do feel like it should be considered. But the state also didn't have to prove John was anywhere near the murder scene, so this might not matter at all. All they have to prove is that John gave Antonio the gun or he knew Antonio was going to use the gun to commit a crime against Mark and he was okay with it. He didn't even have to believe he was going to be murdered. Even if all he thought Antonio was going to do was rob Mark and it went wrong, that's enough for a second-degree murder conviction against John. So all the state really had to prove is that John knew that Antonio had a gun and he was going to commit a crime against Mark. So that is the bulk of the prosecution's case. The defense case was short. They didn't call any witnesses, which isn't entirely surprising in this scenario. The defense doesn't have to prove anything. That's the state's job. The state had no forensic evidence on their side, so it's not like the defense had experts they could call to refute anything. There wasn't anything to refute. They maybe could have had an expert testify about the reliability of jailhouse informants, but Avita was a fairly last-minute addition to the witness list, so it's possible the attorney didn't really think that much about it. And John's alibi was that he was at his house and he was going to bed. His brother, who was a teenager, was the closest thing to an alibi witness, but I doubt he was watching John all night and looking at the clock to see when he went to bed, so they didn't even have an alibi witness to call. Other than putting John on the stand, there wasn't much left for the defense to do aside from cross-examine the state's witnesses and then poke holes in the case in the closing argument. And that's what his attorney tried to do. He pointed out the inconsistencies in the testimony of the various witnesses. He accused the state of coercing them to testify. He challenged Avito's reliability entirely. He said he didn't even know Avito was going to testify until two days before. And he painted this as the prosecutor's Hail Mary. They were just trying to bolster a case that Avito testifying was more proof that their case was thin. For what it's worth, Antonio's lawyers also didn't put up witnesses. They attacked the credibility of the witnesses against them, and then they pointed the finger at John Juca, saying John acted alone. Of course, John's jury didn't hear that argument, only Antonio's did. After less than Two hours of deliberation, John Juca was found guilty and sentenced to 25 to life. We have the benefit of the recantations of the witnesses, and the jurors obviously didn't have that. 
But with the lack of physical evidence and the inconsistent stories from the witnesses, I don't get why he was convicted. I have no idea how it happened in the less than two hours of discussion. The only thing I can really come up with is that he was convicted on the whole where there's smoke, there's fire idea. Basically, why else would someone have four people testify against him if there wasn't something to it? Where there's smoke, there's fire is not beyond a reasonable doubt. That is not our legal standard, but this was the resolution to this case. I'm not going to get into Antonio Russo's trial that much because his guilt actually is not in question. But I do want to say that the witnesses against him, they talked about him altering his appearance. They talked about him leaving town in the wake of the murder. They talked about Antonio practically bragging about being involved. The stories were a lot more consistent than the witnesses used against John Juca. Whether there was enough evidence against Antonio or not is a fairly moot point because he has since confessed, which, again, we will get into. I wanted to explain why I'm coasting past him. If Antonio maintained his innocence, we'd probably be talking about him too. What I want to point out here, though, is there was more evidence, circumstantial, but more evidence against Antonio than there was against John Juca, and his jury took days. They took a couple days to review the evidence against him. John's jury didn't even take two hours. There is a breakdown here. So before we get to John's appeals process, let me first tell you something about John's mom. This is how I found this case way back when. It was a 2009 Vanity Fair article published called Mother Justice, and it was about John's mom, Doreen Giuliano. After John's conviction, Doreen got her hands on anything and everything she could to try to figure out how to get her son out of prison. She learned that one of the jurors, Jason Allo, was someone people John knew knew. So a friend of a friend. It's not entirely clear if John and Jason ever met each other, but they did know the same people. We don't know exactly how Doreen tracked him down because jurors are generally protected from having their private information broadcast. But she did know his occupation. She knew the neighborhood he lived in. And she claimed, quote, his barber ratted him out. So I'm wondering if he got chatty about being on the jury with his barber. Anyway, she followed him for a while, trying to eavesdrop on him. She knew that approaching him as John Juca's mother was not going to get her anywhere with him. So she concocted an entirely new persona. She went undercover as a woman named D. Quinn. Now, she's an attractive woman. So she kind of hit the gym a bit, invested in some shorter shorts in an attempt to catch his eye. And it worked. She passed by his home multiple times and they eventually started talking. She claimed to be a consultant from California and rented an apartment near him. She got a new cell phone. And most importantly, she bought a high-end digital recorder. Doreen was married to her second husband and father of her other son at this point. 
He didn't entirely approve of this undercover mission, this friendship with this man she's never met before. But he more or less realized she was going to do it anyway, so he might as well help her out. In short, Doreen eventually got this juror, Jason, to say that he never should have been on the jury. He was in this large circle of friends with John. He had some type of connection to this neighborhood gang, the Ghetto Mafia. And I mean, I keep mentioning this gang. These were not hardcore gangbangers. It was like a group of kids acting tough. I don't know that there are any crimes under their belt other than maybe Mark Fisher's murder. But the point is, Jason did not disclose this connection in court. He also said he discussed things with a cousin of his who was also in the social circle. So these recordings ended up being the basis of an appeal due to juror misconduct. In the end, the appeal was denied. But what Doreen did was unbelievable. I can't imagine doing it. I think it's an extra level of courage to go undercover, an extra level of confidence. From what I have read in the interviews I've seen, she seems to think that this is something any mother would do for their child. But I'm going to just say right now, it takes a little something extra to do this. And I think that's what draws people to this case. There are a lot of wrongful conviction claims out there. And while Doreen's actions didn't lead to a successful appeal, it certainly got more media attention on John's case. More people know about John Juca than they ever would have if Doreen never went undercover. And this type of attention puts the case under some scrutiny. So there was another very recent round of appeals for John Juca. These dealt with the allegations of prosecutorial misconduct on the part of Anna Siganicolasi. The coercing witnesses was an issue, but most of this ended up having to do with John Avito's testimony and information that was withheld pertaining to John Avito. At the top of this, I do want to say that Nicolazzi denies all of these accusations. So here are the accusations against her. One was that she did not disclose to the defense that Mr. Avito was mentally ill. She claimed she didn't know. But regardless, the defense did not know that he had a mental illness, particularly one that involves psychosis and possible delusions. The other thing is that she claims that Avito did not get anything in return for his testimony. But in April 2005, Avito had entered a drug rehab program in order to avoid jail. Sometimes you get that option, rehab or jail. He left the rehab before his time was up and went back on drugs. So that made him a fugitive. It's at this point that he offered the information about John Juca's alleged confession to his father. So when Avito then later went to court over leaving the rehab and violating his sentence, Nicolazzi went to that court hearing and had an off-the-record conversation with the judge. And next thing you know, Avito was released on his own recognizance, which means he did not have to give money for bail. Usually, if someone has already been a fugitive, they don't 
get released without having to pay something for bail. That's what bail's there. It's to ensure people will return. But he got to leave on his own recognizance. Then it happened again, and he was released without bail again and told he had to go back to a drug program. The program claimed Vito was not compliant, and he was at some point picked up while he was high. They sent him to detox. He skipped out on detox. And then he was again released on his own recognizance. So multiple non-compliance issues, and he's still getting out without having to provide any bail. Another issue is that when Avito was testifying in John Juca's trial, Nicolazzi asked him if he received special treatment and how was he doing in his drug program. He lied on both of these, and in the U.S. courts, attorneys cannot knowingly elicit false testimony. So Nicolazzi would have to believe he was doing well in his drug program in order to ask this question and then receive the false response. There was a letter in Avito's file that said he wasn't doing well in the drug treatment center. Now, the question is, did Nicolazzi know about this letter? And the answer is maybe. So the defense actually received a copy of this letter that was dated the next day. It was not the same version of the letter sent to the prosecution. This one was altered. It did not say that he was a defendant in another case, and it did not say that he was noncompliant with his treatment. So who altered this letter and doctored it and sent it to the defense? This is a pretty huge accusation. And on February 2018, John's conviction was overturned unanimously by a four-judge panel. They wrote that the prosecution had erred in not telling the defense about the special treatment Avito received for testifying. They said it might have changed the jury's verdict. And we've talked about this before with Brady violations. You not only have to prove something was withheld, but you have to prove that that thing was enough that it could have altered the outcome if it was provided to the defense. So after 13 years in jail, it looked like John might be getting out. The state appealed the ruling, which usually happens, and John was denied bail. He was hoping to get bail pending the appeal, but that was denied, and he stayed at Rikers Island while he was waiting. For those unfamiliar with Rikers Island, it's known for being a very rough place to be doing time. It has a horrible reputation for violence, not just from inmates, but from the guards as well. If you want to be nauseous for the rest of your life, feel free to look it up. A month after John was given a new trial, things weren't looking that great for the state's case if they were having to take this to trial again. Most of those witnesses they leaned on had recanted. They had Albert Cleary left. So the DA sent some NYPD detectives to prison to interview Antonio Russo to see what he had to offer. In this meeting, Antonio confessed not only that he shot and killed Mark Fisher, but he said explicitly that he used his own gun, 
Now, he didn't say John was involved, and he didn't say he wasn't involved. But he took away a key piece of the state's case. He took the gun away. So now they don't have three of their witnesses. They have Albert Cleary, and then they have Antonio Russo saying it was his own gun, not John's. Antonio did not say John told him to kill Mark, that John knew he was going to rob Mark, that John knew anything. So they are not in a great place if they had to take this back to court. The highest court in New York heard the appeal in April 2019, and in June, they reversed the lower court's ruling, giving John a new trial. A very boiled-down summary of the ruling is basically that they didn't believe there was enough evidence that promises were made to a veto, and that even if there were, and even if the defense had that information, it wouldn't have changed the jury's verdict. So they reinstated John Juca's conviction in a 5-1 ruling. One of the judges did not vote. But we're actually not done yet. During this process of appealing, trying to get a new trial, the state trying to get the new trial overturned, more evidence was found. Evito turned out not to be the only jailhouse informant Anna Siganicolasi spoke to. In a recorded interview that was never turned over to the defense, Nicolasi questioned Joseph Ingram, who had been placed in the same cell block as John and Antonio. He spoke to both of them about the case, and he told Nicolasi on this tape that Antonio said he showed up at John's door with the gun in hand after the murder. This means John was not at the scene. Antonio said he tried to get John to take the gun and get rid of it, and John refused. This statement directly contradicted the state's witnesses who said John gave the gun to Antonio and John was the one who tried to get rid of it later. This could have been used at the trial to impeach those witnesses. The defense did not get this tape until 2018, after Antonio confessed and didn't implicate John. There is a big reason this is a big deal. It came to light too late for John to include it in his most recent appeal. However, the court that reinstated his conviction mentioned in their ruling that there was compelling evidence from trial that John disposed of the gun. So they're saying that this evidence that he disposed of the gun was solid enough that the jury probably would have still found him guilty at trial even if they discounted Avito's jailhouse informant testimony. John's attorney was barred from presenting this new evidence because the Court of Appeals was only hearing issues related to their successful lower court appeal for a new trial. The state held onto this tape long enough that it never made it into John's earlier appeal, so it was not allowed to be considered. This is also why Antonio's confession that left John out of everything couldn't be considered either. The information came out too late. 
And as Mr. Bumble so eloquently put it in Oliver Twist, the law is an ass. So now we have a new appeal. This one is going to include this newly discovered evidence. However, this is starting John Juca at square one. It is going to take years to get this appeal together, to get it heard in the appellate court, then to appeal it if it doesn't go their way or the state. We know they're going to appeal it if it doesn't go their way. John Juca is spending at least a few more years in jail, even if he gets his conviction overturned on this appeal. With the Rodney Reed possible wrongful conviction that I covered a few weeks ago, it was pretty easy to present both sides of the case because there are two sides to that case. This case, the John Juca case, I had to look very hard to find evidence that he did it, to look at the other side. We have proximity. He was in the neighborhood. So was Albert Cleary and Angel DiPietro and a bunch of other people, but John Juca was in the neighborhood. There is no evidence against John Juca that wouldn't also apply to Albert Cleary, except for Albert's statement that John confessed to him. So we have proximity, John had a tough guy image, and Albert Cleary said he said he did it. That's what we have here. I found a pretty big source for the John Juca did it angle. It's an investigation discovery show called Fatal Encounters. And ADA Nicolasi is in the episode. It was not an attempt at presenting both sides. This was a 100% John Juca did this and here's how he did it. And the show really played up the ghetto mafia angle and made it sound like this was a kill to give their gang street credit. That's the narrative the show is taking. And I get it. These more dramatic true crime shows, they're not looking to talk about the minutiae for an hour like I like to do. They're giving you a story. And that's what this was. This was the story arc for the episode that here's a small town neighborhood gang and they're looking for a kill. It mentions in the episode that John was arrested for a previous shooting and then released. And I hadn't seen that in my research, so I looked it up. And it looks to me like he was implicated in another incident, but it wasn't until after he was arrested for Mark Fisher's murder. Like nine months later, he was accused of having shot at a group of men while he was on vacation down in Florida. The charges were eventually dropped, and they seemed to be more a matter of leverage to try to get. John to cooperate in some way in Mark Fisher's case. So, okay, John Juca was implicated in another crime. Well, so was Albert Cleary. He was a suspect in another violent attack. So, again, are we picking and choosing what we're going to use to bolster our case, or are we looking at everything fairly? This fatal encounter show also presented it as John was kicking Mark out of his house to give Antonio the chance to rob slash murder him. But that makes you wonder, why did John let Mark take the blanket? I mean, if you're kicking someone out of your house to be held at gunpoint, why are you worrying about their comfort? And if he was doing it 
for him to be set up for murder, why was he giving him something that links him back to his own house? Honestly, between giving Mark the blanket and that phone call to Alberts, John's explanation really does fit here. It was cold. Mark was walking to Alberts. John called Albert to let him know Mark was on his way. There was also a statement made in this show saying that Mark may have been ambushed by Antonio, but again, we have these ear witnesses who heard an argument and the sound of a car. And let's talk about those witnesses. The show said, quote, there were no eyewitnesses, which is technically true. Nobody saw anything. But it's a little misleading when they don't follow it up with the fact that there were ear witnesses. There were people who heard what happened, multiple people, in fact. The show also stated that John Juca tricked Mark into taking an ecstasy pill, but no ecstasy was found in his system. I tried to watch the show with an open mind years ago when I first covered this case. And I decided, let's try it again. Open mind, I'm just going to take in what they're saying. But the show is not factually correct and it defied logic. On Mark Fisher's memorial site that his family maintains, they say that they and the authorities believe more than just Antonio and John were involved in the murder. And that did come up at trial, that the state believed there may have been a third person. After the trial, the Fishers were rather upset that the DA is willing to say there may have been someone else there, but they weren't making any moves towards uncovering who it was, investigating, or bringing it to trial. So a year after John and Antonio's trial, the Fisher family sued Angel DiPietro in civil court, and the claim was that she was liable for his death for bringing him to a party with known violent people while he was intoxicated. I don't know how far they really intended to get with this lawsuit, but lawsuits bring something more valuable than money. They bring depositions. It would give the Fishers' lawyers a chance to talk to Angel, someone they believe knows more than she has said and may have even been at the scene, maybe could have been that female voice heard by neighbors. The family doesn't know. They want to know, and this was a means to try to get that information. But they didn't get what they wanted. The suit was dismissed, and Angel DiPietro eventually became a lawyer herself. In 2012, she was hired by the Brooklyn DA's office. This hiring made the news for obvious reasons. Her connection to a high-profile case that's under a lot of scrutiny. I don't know if the Fisher family still believes there were more people involved other than John or Antonio. I don't know if Antonio's confession changes their view about John Juca's guilt. As I was talking to some local friends about a case where the victim's family is dissatisfied with how some things are being handled, you really wish there was a way to protect a defendant's constitutional rights, to protect their right to a fair trial, to protect their civil rights without causing the victim's family more harm 
by bringing this up every few years, by making this a media circus, by going back to court, by requiring them to go back to court, for this to be the headline when they open their web browser. If there was a way we could shield victims and their families from this continued pain, I wish we could find it. I really wish there was a spot we could be in where John Juca had a right to a fair trial that didn't hurt Mark Fisher's grieving family in the process. There isn't a way. Life is messy. This is painful for John's family. This is incredibly painful for Mark's family. This is, I'm sure, painful for Antonio Russo's family. There's a lot of pain here, but that pain can't stop us from seeking justice. 